Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. One third of 18 to 34 year olds in the U.S. now live with their parents. That's according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Here in Connecticut, over 40% of millennials are living back home, second only to the state of New Jersey at 47%. Today, where we live, we talk about why. Is it solely because recent graduates are having a hard time finding jobs, which keeps them from affording a place of their own? Or are there other factors at play? Coming up, two Connecticut millennials will tell us their stories. We'll also hear how the number of young adults living with their parents may be driving a new trend in multi-generational housing. Is your recent graduate back at home? Are you a young adult living in your parents' basement? We want to hear from you. Email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First, I want to welcome into the discussion Lauren Sardi. She's Associate Professor of Sociology at Quinnipiac University, and she's on the phone uh, to give us some uh, um, in details on the numbers here in Connecticut. Lauren, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. We're talking about millennials today in Connecticut. Tell us about the millennials and where they're living. Um, well, uh, as you said earlier, uh, definitely more and more millennials are actually still living at home with their parents. Um, while that's not, it, this hasn't been the only time um, where we've seen an uptick in when uh, young adults have lived with their parents, this is actually the first time in which those numbers have surpassed the number of young adults living with a spouse or partner. And what are some of the reasons why? You said that this is not the first time. So maybe we should back up and find out a little bit more about the context. Uh, well, um, it, according to, uh, you know, I went through the, the Pew Research data, um, and actually the, the very highest time um, was in the 1940s, um, and it was just one percentage point, I believe, higher than what it is now. Um, it, but I think that that was for probably different reasons, uh, certainly than what's going on today. Um, and, and, and even though it was a bit higher, um, it wasn't really as notable because um, uh, young adults during the 1940s were still actually more likely to live with a spouse or partner. So, so this trend is still a bit different. Um, and I think that people are sort of pointing out a number of different things, um, one being sort of, um, you know, employment, um, the changing landscape, particularly in Connecticut, of the types of jobs that are available for young adults, um, also um, their educational attainment, and probably also shifts in marital status as well. That, that probably um, definitely contributes to this, this pattern that we're seeing emerge now. When we look at Connecticut, Lauren, are there specific geographic areas where you're finding more millennials at home? Um, I believe so. If you look at different counties and, and so forth, I think that they are, um, we have particularly high rates in uh, Litchfield County, um, um, I believe also um, in the southwest uh, corner of the state, I believe. I, I mean, I don't necessarily know what the trends are from, you know, or what sort of um, social patterns are driving those, those issues within particular counties. Um, but if you're looking at sort of the, the state as a whole, um, you know, the, those trends are, are still definitely there. 
And when you look at these young adults, um, are they coming from middle class households, uh, sometimes wealthy households where they have the ability to, um, you know, to stay at home? Uh, you know, their parents have room, I guess I, guess I should be saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I, I think it actually has more to do with um, educational attainment. And also, you know, certainly the data breaks it down by, by um, race and ethnicity, uh, gender, and highest educational level attained. And so what we find is that um, um, the people who are actually the least likely to be staying at home are people who self-identify as white, who have um, at least a bachelor's degree, and who, who have some sort of, um, probably some sort of job, which sort of makes sense in a way. If you have a job, you're probably less likely to be at home with your parents. We're getting a tweet or a call. Uh, David from West Hartford says he's 26. He lives with his parents, but he actually pays for everything because his parents are on disability. So that's one particular situation of an individual who might be at home. And it's uh, the flip side. So when we Mm -hmm. think about millennials being at home, that um, they're technically um, getting support from the parents still, even after they leave college. But everyone's uh, situation is different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, when you have large-scale data like what we're going through right now, um, it, doesn't, it, it often doesn't get at the nuance of what's going on in, in particular people's lives, which is why we like to have, you know, we, we like to have large statistical data, but we also like to be able to interview folks and to kind of get at, at a more in-depth look at, at what's going on in their lives. Um, and certainly, I don't know how that would actually show up because a lot of the data that um, is being collected is through census data. And so it actually depends on who claims to be the, the quote unquote head of household and, and things like that. So depending upon you know, how that particular individual filled out the census, it may be that they are actually considered the head of household. But you know, every, everyone sort of can fill that out differently. So I don't know the, the particulars. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about young adults, 18 to 34, who are still living with their parents and the factors that are causing them to do so. And we were speaking with Lauren Sardi, Associate Professor of Sociology at Quinnipiac University. Uh, Lauren, you mentioned nuance, and so I wanted to bring into the conversation uh, two millennials who are in studio with us. Uh, First, Amanda Mark, who's 30. She's an art history student at the University of Hartford, graduating in May. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Also, uh, Brendan, 23, a graduate from UConn in 2015 with a degree in journalism, and you're now working at EXL Service in Hartford. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure. Um, So we're going to hear your story um, throughout the hour. We're going to be hearing um, one of the reasons or many of the reasons why you may be at home, but tell us first, Amanda, you're 30 and you're still living with your parents. What were some of the circumstances that led you there? Graduating from high school, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. My parents wanted me to go to college. I wasn't entirely sold on the idea. I wasn't sure what it was that I wanted to do. And actually, after having a tumultuous high school experience, or tumultuous mm-hmm. high school experience, I kind of went back and forth between school following that. After a couple of years on and off at school, I decided that I would like to pursue more of a job field, working in agriculture, working as a child care provider, also as a personal assistant. And after doing that so many times, moving out of the house, moving back home, I decided that uh, going to school and getting a bachelor's degree would be really the next step and helping me secure a career that would provide me with the financial means to truly support myself comfortably. So you're graduating in May. Do you feel confident that when you graduate, you're going to be able to afford to live in Connecticut? (laughs) Um, With an art history degree, not necessarily, um, unless I were to move out of Connecticut. But also one of the things that you come up to bat with is you need experience in the field. So... 
although I'm working as a curatorial intern, I still feel as though I need a little more professional experience under my belt. And Brendan, I'll turn to you. You're a little bit younger than Amanda. You're also living at home with your parents after graduating. Mm -hmm. Tell us why you're doing that. Uh, Well, my situation is a little different than uh, most people's because I'm actually legally blind. So I can't drive, which means my parents have to take me to every important uh, appointment that I have. And that includes work every day. And uh, when I graduated from college, I originally wanted to go begin my career down in Washington, D.C. because I would have access to public transportation, and I had already been down there for an internship, so I knew the city well. I moved down there in August of 2015, um, failed to find a full-time job after six months of vigorously searching, and then I came back home, and uh, I was living with my parents for a solid year until, uh, lo and behold, after, you know, doing part-time work and freelance writing for a while – 21 months after graduation, a full-time offer finally came into the fold. And, you know, once I got it, I was so eager to finally get my own place in Hartford that was within walking distance of work and not have to worry about, you know, being somebody's pastor anymore, particularly when my my dad has to drive me, drop me off at work an hour and a half before I actually start, which is oodles of fun. But now that I'm actually at the point where I'm almost financially capable of living on my own, uh, there's some things that my parents kind of want me to stick around for. Mainly, they're worried about my savings, and my mother is just this very sweet woman who also loves having a son to take care of. (laughs) Well, that's a good thing. And we're going to be hearing more about some of the things that you're encountering um, after having to move back home with your parents. But I want to first thank Lauren Sardi, Associate Professor of Sociology at Quinnipiac University, for joining us and giving us a glimpse at the data. Today, we're talking about the growing number of young people millennials were living at home. Coming up, we'll look further into the reasons behind this trend. And we're going to hear perspectives on why it's not entirely entirely fair, rather, to lump all millennials into the category of entitled. More on that after the break. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about millennials who live at home. In recent years, more and more young adults are living with their parents. Is that a bad thing? Depends on who you're asking. There's a sentiment out there that millennials are, quote, entitled. But what's that opinion based on? And do you think it's accurate? We have two Connecticut residents who are millennials when you consider their ages. And we're going to hear more about uh, the factors that led them to live at home and what they're seeing um, in society, perceptions about them because of that. But first... So you take this group of people, and they graduate school, and they get a job, and they're thrust into into the real world, and in an instant, they find out they're not special, their moms can't get them a promotion, that you get nothing for coming in last, and by the way, you can't just have it because you want it, right? And in an instant, their entire self-image is shattered. That's New York Times bestselling author and leadership expert Simon Sinek. He's speaking in a video that went viral in December. He's joining us by phone now. Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We just played a sound clip from that video on Inside Quest that went viral where you were talking about the millennial problem. What is that problem? Well, almost every talk that I go to and every meeting that I have, somebody will ask me, quote unquote, the millennial question. In other words, this young generation of employees seems to confound leaders of today, um, unlike previous generations. And so I fashioned an answer based on the way they grew up, the, the addiction to technology that many of us suffer with, um, and uh, the corporate environments in which they're entering. And you mentioned in that video that um, you believe that millennials aren't developing coping mechanisms. Uh, tell us more about, um, about the technology playing a factor and even uh, parenting. So when we're very, very young, the only approval we need is from our parents. 
as we reach adolescence, we now crave the approval of our peers. It's frustrating for our parents, but it's very important for us. It's a time of high stress and high anxiety, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people, quite by accident, discover sort of or are given access to technology, social media, and and uh, and cell phones. And unfortunately, um, like alcohol, like cigarettes, we get a hit of dopamine, a chemical called dopamine inside our bodies, which is what makes those things feel good. Now, we know that young children who discover alcohol at the age of 15, 40% of them are going to become alcoholics. Where if they just waited till over the age of 19, that number drops to something like 8%. And so if the same thing happens, if the same chemicals released when we engage with social media and cell phones, it actually concerns me that we're giving unfettered access to highly addictive technologies to young children when their brains are not fully developed. Um, this can turn out later on in life where they struggle to form the coping mechanisms that they should have developed during adolescence. In other words, when they suffer stress or anxiety as adults, they're not turning to people, they're turning to social media or they're turning to uh, their cell phones for, for relief, mainly social media. And that um, leads into that instant gratification, um, hoping that you'll uh, get an easy answer or easy solution to problems when they come up? It's exactly right. I mean, when we, you know, we, we crave the feeling that people are liking us or following us. And it can sometimes be devastating when somebody unfollows us. And we deal with all of our problems online. You know, we express our feelings online to strangers, to people who aren't directly involved with us. And even if they do respond, they're responding in a public forum as opposed to going to a friend and saying, I'm struggling, I need help, I'm not coping. It's all done out, uh, out loud, and unfortunately, the, the instant gratification we may get from somebody saying, I got you, I'm here for you, is not exactly the same as a friend who sits down with you for as long as you need with their hand on your back and say, I'm never going to leave your side. Now, today, Simon, we're talking about the growing number of young adults, millennials, that are, are living with their parents. And how does what you found uh, in the corporate world uh, impacting this, this issue of millennials uh, staying home longer? So by itself, there's no particular problem with people staying home longer. Um, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of students are saddled with debt or are struggling to find a job in this economy. Um, and, you know, it, by itself, it's not a problem. However... Um, if you combine that with all the other factors that so many of this generation grew up with, um, many grew up with overly coddled, overly purelled, if you will, um, not exposed to sort of bad things that if, if they got in trouble at school, instead of, saying, instead of coming home and their parents saying, what did you do now? Too many parents said, what's wrong with your school and criticized the teachers, for example. So growing up overly coddled and then being released into the open world, at some point, usually that's college, you want people to learn a little bit of self-reliance and independence. And if they stay home too long, combined with all of the other factors, it raises a question, when will they learn the skill? This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, you're listening to Simon Sinek. He's a New York Times bestselling author, Leaders Eat Last, Why Some Teams Pull Together and Others Don't, a leadership expert, and featured in a viral YouTube video all about the millennial question. And that video saw over 6 million views. Uh, today we're talking about uh, millennials, a growing number again, who live at home. Uh, Simon, uh, two uh, millennials living in Connecticut are in studio with me. I wanted them to respond a little bit to what you're saying. Uh, I wanted to go back to, to Brendan. Uh, when you hear people talk about millennials and a lack of coping mechanisms and some of the factors that led to that. Uh, what do you think? I mean, I, I certainly understand uh, where the perspective is coming from, because during my 
my near two-year drought of you know coming out of college, graduating magna cum laude, having two majors, having what I, I viewed as a stacked resume and just having no results come of it after a long time of just basically things working out in my favor you know, just in general, you know, getting into the college that I wanted to get into, getting the 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 college leadership positions that I applied for, um, it was it was a brutal slap to the face. And yeah, I did turn to Facebook and, and Twitter just to unleash some of my my frustrations. And of course, I would get, you know, the, those those would be the uh, the posts that get more likes than anything else. Um, but I, I, in terms of like not having the proper coping method, I mean, I still had uh, you know a, a strong network of people that I would sit down and have in-depth one-on-ones with. I, I would say, you know, the 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 long Facebook rant was sort of more like the immediate um, response, and and then of course I would have the 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 real substantive conversations with the people I wanted to have them with because there's plenty of people on Facebook that I don't want to have them with and that's why you know I'll allow you to like my status and comment on it but I'm not going to engage you in a huge back and forth because I know this isn't the venue for it. And what about you, Amanda? Um, as for Simon Sinek's uh, what he had to say about millennials, I wouldn't say it's necessarily something that applies to me. I've had a very non-traditional course. And over the course of time, I've had a lot of bad things happen to me or I've been disappointed by a lot of things. So I'm not used to the assumption that everything's going to work out, that I'm going to get what I want. Um, And I definitely wouldn't say that I've had a coddled experience. As for relying on social media for some kind of affirmation, I'm actually not a huge social media user. And I have problems with people that tend to air their griefs on social media because I do see it as a problem that people are seeking out these kind of affirmations. Our next guest joining us, and Simon, I wanted you to stay on the line, uh, is psychologist Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. He's the author of two books, including Emerging Adulthood, The Winding Road from the Late Teens Through the Twenties. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Hello. So you've been studying 18 to 29-year-olds specifically. Why this age group? And uh, what's your reaction to talk uh, in, the, in the last few years about the uh, millennials and this idea of entitlement? Well, I've been studying 18 to 29-year-olds for the last 25 years. In the early 1990s, I and many other people had noticed that people were reaching adulthood later, staying in school longer, taking longer to reach a stable place in the labor force and getting married later, having their first child later. And so I became curious about what was going on in the 20s now and uh, why these changes were taking later and the consequences of them. So I've spent the last 25 years studying 18 to 29-year-olds. I proposed about 20 years ago that it really makes a lot of sense to think of this as a new stage of the life course, that now instead of going from adolescence to a stable young adulthood around age 20, as people did a couple of generations ago. Now, as the popular saying goes, 30 is the new 20. And those transitions take place closer to age 30. And and it's a change that's taken place quite rapidly, just in the course of about the last 50 years. And so it is disconcerting to a lot of people, including apparently to Simon. You know, Simon is among many people who have decided that the result of this or the the interpretation of this that's uh, correct is that there's something wrong with them. They must have failed in some way or they must be spoiled or uh, addicted to information technology or whatever the nasty stereotype is. There must be something wrong with them. 
then I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I think the economy has changed in ways that do take longer for people to prepare for it. And I do think their expectations for work are high, much higher than their grandparents and even many of their parents. That makes it take longer for them to enter the workforce. And I think they are in no hurry to enter marriage and parenthood because they want to have a period of freedom in their 20s where they can be on their own and make their own decisions. I don't see that as a bad thing. And I think it's unfortunate that these nasty stereotypes are being applied to them and they're being subjected to ridicule for entering uh, adulthood transitions later, which is, is in many ways a healthy thing. Simon Sinek, did you want to respond? I mean, I've watched your entire video on the millennial question, and you actually um, say near the end of that that video and those remarks that uh, the corporations uh, and society, you know, they have something, they have a role to play in helping um, these young adults. Yeah. Firstly, let's correct a couple things. I never said there's anything wrong with anybody. Well, um, certainly if anything, that. It's certainly um, I'm like defending some of the accusations and stereotypes and trying to um, and, and sort of asking people to exercise a little empathy to understand. Under, you know, at the end of the day, every single generation, their, their view of the world or their uh, sort of how they grew up affects who they are. If you grew up during the Great Depression or during the Second World War, like our grandparents, it's possible that you're frugal or miserly because you grew up during rations. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means that you are subject to whatever was going on during that period. If you grew up in the 1970s, with Richard Nixon in the Vietnam War, it's highly likely that you grew up suspicious of authority figures. So we cannot ignore the fact that an entire generation grew up, we call them the millennials because they came of age during the millennial, the new millennium, when a time, in a time when technology now became completely ubiquitous in our lives with social media and cell phones. This didn't exist prior. So of course, of course, it's gonna have an impact on the worldview of people. Nothing wrong when people stay at home or develop into adulthood later. However, we have to consider some of the effects of the, the technology in their lives at such a young age. Um, we're starting to see rising rates of suicide amongst this generation. We're starting to see rising rates of, of depression uh, amongst this generation. Um, the single biggest um, demographic with this, the single highest rate of suicide increase are girls 10 to 15 years old. That's unbelievably scary to me. We also know that girls... 10 to 15 years old spend 40% more time on social media than boys. There has, now, it's not, it's not a, um, a causal relationship, but we at least need to raise the question. My fear is that if the same chemical inside our bodies, dopamine, is released with social media and cell phones, and we have age restrictions on alcohol, nicotine, and gambling, but we have no age restrictions on these other addictive technologies, there is, there is going to be a problem, and unless we label it and treat it as such, it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. We're going to see depression rates continue to increase. We're going to see suicide rates continue to increase until we reach epidemic proportions. So I, for one, instead of blaming people or, or, or um, exacerbating stereotypes, would at least try to understand the basis of these, and if there's an opportunity for us to intervene and do something to help people, let's do that. And Simon, I know you wanted to correct the record uh, on Jeffrey's points, but I just want to ask you, so in the, when we look at the corporate world, when we look at young adults and the characteristics and the factors that are leading, you know, whether they have coping mechanisms or not, what can the corporate world, what can society do to help them? So for the past bunch of years, you know, the, many of the corporate standards um, for how they form cultures are throwbacks to the 80s and 90s. 
the concepts of using mass layoffs to balance the books on an annualized basis, for example, didn't exist prior to the 1980s. Um, and shareholder supremacy was a theory proposed in the late 1970s, which means putting the, the, the needs of an external constituency, the shareholders, ahead of employees or customers. And so necessarily, this creates an environment inside a corporate culture that is not necessarily make people feel safe when they come to work. Employees always sort of have this underlying fear that maybe at the end of the year, if, if their d department doesn't do well, for example, they may get laid off, even though, even though their work may, may have been stellar. I mean, this exists. This is for real. And so I think companies need to bear some of the responsibility that if, if there is a younger generation walking in with lower self-esteem uh, than previous generations, then corporate cultures need to make a hard look at the way that they look after their people. And unfortunately, they have responsibility to help this, these people. Um, I get a lot of pushback from companies that say it's not our responsibility. But the problem is those are your employees. So if you don't look after your employees, help them build their skills and help them take care of themselves, who will? I wanted to turn back to psychologist Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. Um, did you want to respond to Simon and then also speak more about some of that research you're doing um, in terms of when we look at this generation, some of the positive attributes they have? Yeah, well, I just don't think it's as dire a picture as, as Simon is portraying. I mean, people are reaching adulthood later than they used to, and that does... That is something that a lot of people find disconcerting. But there are a lot of good things about that. I mean, I think people make a lot better choice about a marriage partner if they wait until about age 30. In fact, the divorce rate is lower as people wait uh, until about that age instead of getting married early in their 20s. And I think people are better parents, too, if they wait to have their first child until they're around age 30. There's evidence for that as well. And, and yeah, they're not in any hurry to enter the corporate world and uh, get a job that they're going to have for the next 30 years, but that's a good thing. That's to their credit. They want to enjoy the freedom of their 20s while they can and do things in their 20s that they won't be able to do later, and that, that's, a, that's a kind of wisdom as well. I just don't think things are, are, are that dire. I mean, it's true that a lot of them look at the data. Uh, are depressed look at the data. and, and anxious are when they're going through all these changes and there's a lot of uncertainty about their future. But they're also extraordinarily optimistic. In my research, which, which includes uh, a national survey, close to 90% of them believe that eventually they're going to get what they want out of life. So even though they're struggling in the present, and a lot of them do have anxiety and, and feel depressed and, and confused about where their life is going, there's also a lot of vitality and a lot of optimism. I wanted to take a quick call. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Um, today we're talking about millennials, a growing number who are still living with their parents. We're looking into some of the factors why. Um, on the phone with us is uh, Simon Sinek, a New York Times bestselling author, also a leadership expert, and psychologist Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. Uh, Christina's calling from Farmington. Christina, you're on the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, you, so you identify as a millennial. What do you think so far of this conversation and what the experts are saying? Well, you know, partially, I definitely think that they have something, um, you know, <laughs> however combative, they both seem to, to be, you know, in my opinion, I'm, I'm not only a millennial, but I'm a mother. So what I have to take on right now is like trying to go to school full time for my second degree, because my first degree that I obtained I'm not able to find a job that sustains me here in Connecticut, um, you know, and raising my five-year-old daughter, you know, is very difficult. So, you know, to bring it kind of back to where we were in the beginning, um, to be here in Connecticut, to be a millennial, working as hard as we are, we're not just sitting by idle. And, and, you know, when you talk about 
the social media gratification aspect, you have to consider, too, that, like, <laughs> I think adults, people who are older than me, kind of abuse it more than millennials do. At this point, we kind of look at it and we're like, oh, boy, another, you know, st- like, it, like status about complaining about our lives. But I see more adults, like, playing Facebook games and going on there all day to post every single thing that's going on with them more than millennials do. So I think we should kind of move away from that aspect. Um, because I really don't think it's about that. I think it's about we live in a state that it's extremely difficult to live in, even if you're an adult, um, unless you're making $100,000 or more a year. And I, I think a lot of people can agree upon that. So for me, as a millennial and a mother and a full-time college student for the second time, I'm doing what I can in the present because I know that I have no other option for my future in this state if I don't. And I think a lot of people are in that same position. I don't know a single fellow millennial who isn't struggling and who isn't receiving some kind of financial aid. And I I don't live at home, but I wouldn't be able to live on my own if my father didn't help me. And I'm not ashamed of that because um, I'm doing everything that I can. And, you know, even though I'm still relatively young, in my opinion, um, it is a struggle and it's going to take me a couple of years until I'm at a sustainable place to live here long term and to have a career. So, and we want to be happy too. You can't, you know, you can't just expect us to get out here, work as hard as we can because, you know, there's that lazy thing. Like, millennials are lazy. They just don't know what they're doing. And it's like, no, we're, we're out here. We're trying. But it's hard. And it's harder than it was. And it's only going to get harder for my daughter's generation. And, you know, I certainly don't coddle her. But I definitely do look at it inclusively. Like, am I raising somebody who is going to be able to be better than me? at getting a career immediately out of college. It's something we have to think about. Christina, are you worried at all about uh, student loan debt? It sounds like you said that you're back in school for the second time. Oh, absolutely. It's crushing. It's crushing. So you consider that and and you look at, you know, all of the debt that I'm accumulating, you know, (laughs) yeah, it's very, I get anxiety just thinking about it because it's like you look at us and then you're like, oh, well, you know, they're not doing well. They're not getting to where they want to be. Well, what can we do? You know, we have all of this debt, and then, you know, especially in the current political climate, I don't really feel like it's going to get any better for me, if not probably a little bit worse, you know? So, and the, and the debt I'm accumulating now, going back to school again, just to survive. So it's like, where where does the cycle kind of end? If I'm not, if I can't get help from my parents because I'm looked down upon for getting help from my parents, and I'm going to school and accumulating more debt, at what point do I become, like, a productive member of this society where I, I can self-sustain. It's it's kind of, it's it's very hard. It's very hard. And I, I come from an, uh, an upper middle class family. Um, you know, I'm a first generation college student. If that helps anybody, it's like, it's it's not easy. It's, it's really not. Well, Christina, thank you so much for your call and, and good luck to you. I wanted to get our in-studio millennials to respond to Christina's story. Uh, what do you think, uh, Brendan, when you hear um, someone who's going back to school and saying that Connecticut just has too many costs that are hurting her so that she needs to rely on a little bit of support from from her parents to help her with her family. I mean, I think it's very commonplace. I know very few people where the situation isn't that. I mean, uh, even people who didn't go to college and who just went straight into the workforce, you know, they would be working there for seven, eight years. You know, I remember when I was working, you know, a part-time grocery store job back in high school and seasonally in college, you know, they would hit 30 and, you know, they would have a relationship that's been going for a long time and they want to have a kid and start a family. But, you know, they're still at the point where they have to get a little monthly subsidy from their folks for rent. And, you know, uh, with with Christina, I, I totally understand the whole, you know, having to go back to school because, 
uh, the the degree that you graduated with just turns out to be useless. And I, I graduated from UConn. You know, when, when I was in my unemployment period, people asked me what I studied. I just said liberal arts garbage because <laughs> – that's that's what it was, you know. I graduated political science, journalism, creative writing, and you know, part of that was because of my disability. I couldn't really be a journalist because I didn't have a car, so that was on me. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, it was it was so uh, you know debilitating to realize you've put in all this hard work, and it really is you know to the face of an employer, just like eh, not we were looking what we were looking for, and then have to go back. And you know, I was in the process of you know beginning to look for. For graduate schools to like, all right, clearly, like you know, I messed up the first time around. Maybe having uh, you know an M an MD or or not an MS or a PhD next to my name will make it look a little better, even if the subject matter is in an equally quote unquote useless field. I wanted to turn back to Simon Sinek, New York Times bestselling author. Simon, you heard uh, from one of the Connecticut millennials, uh, you know, kind of a discouraging message, uh, feeling like he went to school and he was just wasn't prepared. Is there a role for higher education to play to, to help these young adults uh, be more successful once they get that diploma? I mean, you're opening Pandora's box here. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, of, of course. I mean, first of all, the, I, I, I got a liberal arts education as well. And I like to think that what I learned at school was much more than the subjects I studied. Um, I tried to learn sort of where I excelled at, sort of what my talents were at school, and I tried to leverage those when I got into the workforce. And I think that's one of the things that school offers us the opportunity to do, which is to learn critical thinking. Um, also, though, um, I mean, like I said, when you say you're, we're opening Pandora's box here, I mean, universities themselves are running more like businesses where, you know, we praise the presidents who raised lots of money, but the question is, are we giving students the education they, they need? In other words, is it is it just about um, making the grade and, and, and pulling in the money, or is it actually like teaching them a well-rounded skill set for them to, to, to do well in the future? I don't know the answer to that, but I think but I think I've, I've certainly talked to enough people in universities that at least the question is being raised. Well, thank you again, Simon Sinek, for joining Where We Live. I wanted to turn back to our other guest, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, research professor of psychology, uh, author of the book Emerging Adulthood. Uh, Jeffrey, you also heard our uh, our in-studio guest, uh, Brendan, talking about um, just a little bit of the uh, discouragement of, of leaving college and feeling like he doesn't really have of a path, uh, feeling like he majored in liberal arts garbage, so to speak. Uh, what do you say to him? Well, I would say it's not garbage, and I think in the long run he'll find out that that's true. It's still a wonderful thing. In fact, it's a more important thing than ever to have post-secondary education, whether it's a four-year degree or some kind of training in a profession. Because we've shifted from a manufacturing economy to a knowledge economy, the rewards for and the importance of a college degree are more important than ever. And I think that'll be true for him eventually, even if even if it hasn't been true yet. Statistically, it's, it's certainly true. People with a four-year degree have an unemployment rate that's less than half of what people have if they have only high school or less. And they also make a lot more money in the course of their year, uh, a course of their career, than people with uh, less education. So it does pay off in the long run. It's not garbage. You've learned how to think. You've learned how to articulate your thoughts, how to write. And those things are rewarded in the knowledge economy eventually, even if not immediately. I do think we need to do a lot more as a society to help people get the education and training they need. It is more important than ever. And we're not doing a very good job of it right now. Many states, including my own state of Massachusetts, are pathetic as far as supporting uh, state-funded 
colleges and universities. And we, we need to make it an entitlement that everybody has a chance to get because it's so important now for their economic future. I want to thank uh, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett. He's, uh, again, research professor of psychology, and he teaches at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Thank you for your time, Jeffrey. I want to take one more quick call. Brian from Middletown. Brian, you're on the show. Quickly. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing um, well. I just wanted to add my perspective to the conversation. I'm a millennial. I'm 31. I still live at home. I have an in-law apartment off the house, so it's a little bit different. Um, I actually have a really good job. I make a lot of money. I think it's more trying to save for the future. I think my generation, something that we didn't really touch on, we've kind of faced kind of a lot of traumatic events, you know, between 9-11, Iraq war, financial crash. I think we're very skeptical. A lot of institutions have failed us Mm -hmm. between the government, the churches, the media, the banks. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, yeah, the time we live in, not much trust in any institutions. We don't yeah, see the true. government as looking out for our interests. I have a degree in engineering, so I actually do have quote unquote useful degree. Yeah, that's, I don't that's, think uh, any degree is really useful. useless, but you know, a lot of people went to school, got into debt, thought they were making all the right moves, and then they graduate, can't find a job. Um, more localized, if you look at the economy, Connecticut has just lagged the entire country, which isn't right. doing that great. And then the high cost of living, as one person touched on, mm-hmm. um, when you combine all of it, I think people are choosing to stay at home for various reasons. For me, it's trying to save up for a house, trying to save up for retirement. I see it as a smart move to make, and then I'm also helping my parents as well. So, Right. Well, there's no shame in it. I mean, families have always helped each other, and, and it's true parents probably help kids for longer now than they did a generation ago. But one thing I didn't get a chance to mention, but I often have written about, is that parents will rely on their kids eventually, too. I mean, eventually your, par- your parents are going to get old, and it's very likely they're going to need you. And so it, it, this is how the generational equation works. They support you when you're young, and then you give them the help they need when they get old. And, and it's, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's a great thing. Well, I want to thank Brian for sharing his story. And again, uh, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, again, research professor of psychology, author of the book Emerging Adulthood, The Winding Road from the Late Teens Through the Twenties. Thank you so much for your time. We're going to head to break. But coming up, what's so wrong with multi-generations living under one roof? In the U.S., it's likely you'll get the side eye if you tell people you live with your parents. But other countries accept it, and there are signs in the U.S. that more extended families are choosing to live under one roof. More on that after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, today we're talking about millennials, and when you're shopping for a new home, some listings stress the in-law apartment. But there are home-building companies like Lennar that are marketing homes for extended families. The company calls it multi-generational living. To tell us more about this shift taking place, we're joined now by interior designer Mary Cook. She's founder and principal of Mary Cook Associates in Chicago. Uh, Mary, welcome to the show. Thank you. We're talking about multi-generational home design. Talk about the shift that you're seeing in in homeowners today. We have been seeing a a shift for some time. We we designed the model homes for many of the big national publicly traded home builders. So Toll Brothers and MI Homes have been building homes 
for some time with this space that um, it, for a while it was an au pair space, then it was an in-law space, then, it, then the boomerang kids were coming back. So sometimes they just end up calling it flakes flex space because it really transforms it, it itself for various chapters of your life depending on where you are but for the most part we have we look to we've been looking to either capture space or space that's already there space that's inexpensive to build so maybe up above a garage we're taking and converting space as well it might be a lower level space that wasn't completely furnished yet so we're looking for those kinds of spaces that can add a ton of value for a certain chapter of your life to allow for this multi-generational lifestyle to go to go on. Now, because we're talking about um, more, like I think about one-third of millennials are now are living with their parents across the U.S., because we're talking about the specific age group, you know, how mm-hmm. are homeowners adapting their homes to accommodate their adult children? The number one thing, the number one focus in, in having multi-generational is privacy. So we're looking to create spaces that um, that can allow different work schedules to happen simultaneously. So somebody might be um, living with their parents. Millennials might be living with their parents as they pursue an, ex- uh, an extended um, education or a, a higher degree, which just makes a whole lot of sense from a cost standpoint. So, so we try to create privacy that allows people to come and go with different schedules. Um, and then... There are also then common spaces, gathering spaces, that allows the, the groups to come together. But then you also have to have rules for cleanup, supplies and groceries, who's buying, about noise, different times of days, about what happens with the cars in the driveway when there's maybe four of them at the same time, um, cooking rules. Uh, so you, you have to have, for the common areas or the gathering spaces, which, which can actually be a great place for um, families to come together and grow stronger. You have to have some parameters and rules. And then, as I say, the number one thing is to figure out a way to get privacy integrated into the layout. Uh, we have a millennial in studio with us, Amanda Mark. Um, you've been living at home. From what Mary is saying, does that speak to you in terms of the rules that you may have between you and your parents? And who- um, I definitely have to say, as what I would refer to as a millennial young adult or emergency, emerging adult as referred to by others, um, one of the biggest things I come up with living at home with my parents is kind of sharing the communal spaces. And one, you have groceries. I'm primarily responsible for my own groceries, although my parents are happy to feed me. Um, but you do find yourself coming into these conflicts while still at the same time you have this sense of independence that you, at your age, you're doing your own thing, but now you're still sharing the space with your parents and conflicts do arise. I definitely find that. Cars, shuffling them is another thing that we have to deal with. But overall, I'd say they're pretty easy things to navigate for the most part. Um, joining the conversation is uh, Jessica, who's calling from Massachusetts. She actually has a blog about multi-generational uh, living. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit. Um, is it you live in a house of four generations under one roof? Yeah, that's actually the name of our blog. It's called Four Generations, One Roof. And we are, um, there's nine of us total. There's my grandparents who are in their 80s. They're my dad's parents. And then my mom and dad live here. And then me, um, my husband, 
and my son, and then my stepdaughters come on the weekends. And how does it's that all work? Childhood, it's, it's actually the childhood home that I grew up in. So eight years ago, my husband and I were selling our house, and we came and stayed with my parents while we were looking to buy another house, and we never left. <laughs> and then my grandparents shortly moved in um, like a year later. So we added on to our house to accommodate everyone because, like Mary said, having private spaces is like the key. So we added on another kitchen, a couple bathrooms, and um, an extra bedroom, and we added on another driveway, like Mary said, talking about, you know, cars in the driveway. There's lots of things that come up that create a lot of chaos. Um, so my grandfather has dementia. He has severe dementia now. So it's actually kind of a blessing that we all live together because we can all pitch in and help out with him. So there's definitely uh, lots of lots of things that come up that you normally wouldn't have with so many people under one roof. But, I mean, my son is is almost 11 and he's been here since he was two so he doesn't even know any better you know what I mean he's Mm. always lived with his great-grandparents and grandparents and I think that I should think more families should live like this well thank Uh you Jessica for for that glimpse into your very busy household I wanted to turn back to Mary Cook when we're hearing about people adding on to their homes to make room for uh, more family members you know let's talk about cost who can afford to do this that is a big um, that is a big factor for sure so that's again if you can take a look at the spaces if you can capture inexpensive space might be a second story space or a below grade space or a just a small extension or a granny um what we used to call granny flats off the off the side of the house but so who can afford it it's a big um it's a big cost for sure so um a lot of a lot of times we're doing that second story space because it's less expensive um, and or converting additional existing space to and, allow for it. And we're almost out of time. I'll, I'll tell you, the baby boomers are the ones that are taking their millennial children in, and they have they have a, a lot of accumulated wealth, which um, we're looking at as you know we begin to manage their homes as they take in their kids. So, so definitely, it's difficult though. I mean, that's a big. That's a big expense. Now, we're almost out of time, uh, Mary, but n- because we're talking about this uh, this uh, new trend in multi-generational living, do you see it as a society here in this country accepting that, you know, maybe it's becoming the norm and there's nothing wrong with it if you want to support your adult children as they, they get a leg up? Definitely. I think that it has, it is definitely acceptable. I look at my neighborhood with, which is filled with families, and I go right down the street, and um, whether it be, a, you know, a dental degree or a law degree or um, you're moving back in because you need help with child care while you continue your education or, or, you know, you have a job that travels. So whatever the situation, um, you know, modern family today is, it just makes so much sense to cohabitate like this. So I think it's here to stay, and I think that it's a good thing. I, I think that it's, it benefits really everybody involved in many ways. So um, I just think we have to get good at it and um, and have you know have some rules and have um, privacy. And then I think we can. It's here. It's definitely here to stay. Well, I want to thank Mary Cook. She's founder and principal of Mary Cook Associates in Chicago. Thanks for joining us for a little bit, Mary. 
Thank I, you for having me. And I also want to thank our uh, in-studio millennials, Brendan Field, 23, a UConn graduate, and Amanda Mark, who's 30, graduating in May from the University of Hartford. Good luck to both of you, and thanks for giving us some of your perspective. And hopefully, uh, Brendan, you're a little more hopeful before you leave today. I just, I just want to clarify, you know, I don't believe that my education was liberal arts garbage. But, you know, when you're in the despair of long-term unemployment and, you know, I, I really do want to make the point that, you know, when you're living at home after you got out of college, especially when your parents paid for a significant amount or all of your education, you have the frustration of getting out and not having anything. And they have the frustration of, you know, we paid for your education. What's the hold up? In that point, it feels like garbage, but in the long term, no, it's not. And I want to read a tweet from Brian. Millennials living at home is mostly about changes in the economy. Uh, we want to do more shows about what policymakers can do to, to help young adults uh, as you make your way in the world. But thank you again so much, Brendan. Thank Special you. thanks to WMPR intern Ali Oshinsky, who produced today's show. Also, Lydia Brown, Ryan Karen King. And thanks to Katie Tularski, our executive producer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.